This morning, uh, we're going to be doing uh, chapter 6. That's where we are, in case anybody's Bible didn't automatically fall open to that point. Uh, my intention was, when we started this, was to go through verse 14, and guess what? Didn't make it. So we're going to do the second half of verse 10, and uh, then we're going to move forward a little bit from there. Uh Spent a whole lot of time at what seems like saying the same thing over and over again, going all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 10. And so uh, if you remember, the whole point of this entire section from there all the way through chapter 8 is our assurance of salvation. And then there's this little pause in between comprised of chapter 6 and 7 where Paul addresses a common deduction that arises in the hearts of unregenerate men and that being that we as Christians not only are allowed, but in fact are encouraged to continue in sin that grace may abound. We've been told that our salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and that salvation is assured no matter what we do. So why not just continue in sin so that God's grace can superabound, as it were? We who were once in Adam, once enslaved to the law, are now under grace... And now in Christ, so there is literally nothing that we can do that can keep us out of God's wonderful heaven. Uh, so let's just go ahead and live however we want to since we are no longer concerned about the consequences. Now, not one of us here, I hope, would ever adopt such an idea, and yet we all know, we all know far too many people even though they claim to belong to Jesus Christ, they live with exactly that mindset. And so Paul of necessity pauses here to address just that mindset with these seemingly, seemingly never-ending reminders uh, that we are now in Christ. What happened to him in like manner also happened to us. We have been baptized or placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit, placed into his death, placed into his burial, and placed into his resurrection. Just as Christ is no longer a part of this realm and reign of sin, so are we no longer a part of it as well. Christ is offered once and for all time as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the many. As Paul states in the first half of verse 10, he says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. We read that the summation of this in Hebrews 9 and 28. He says, So Christ, having been offered once, once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So he's saying that Christ will come again, not to deal with sin, because he's already done that. It will never happen again. He has done, has done it once and forever. Everything that was necessary to deliver his people from their relationship to sin and death has been accomplished. On the cross he said it is finished. And it was finished. It's done. So we can address the second half of the tenth verse. He says, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This is our picture of the salvation that is worked out in us. The flip side of the coin, if you will. He died to the realm of sin and death once and forever. We, we die to the realm of sin and death once and forever, just like he did. 
But the life he lives, he lives to God. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot die to sin without living the rest of your life to God. You cannot live your life to God without dying to your sin. That's the way that works. That is the picture of our salvation. He died once. That is finished. Yet he goes on living, and the life he lives, he lives to God. So now what does it mean to live to God? Well, it obviously cannot be referring to his obedience because there was never a time that he was not obedient to the Father. It cannot refer to the type of life he lives because his life, even while here on this sinful earth, was a life that was lived entirely to God. So it has no reference at all to his obedience or his behavior or his conduct. Y'all following this? That has always been a constant. Again, remember, what is true of him is true of us. Paul will tell us in verse 11 to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So what is the correct interpretation? Once again and again and again, I've said it about 30 times, it is about our position. Christ is now living entirely and exclusively in the realm of God. In other words, we are presented with a contrast. There was once a time when Christ was in the realm of sin and death voluntary, voluntarily placed himself there for our sakes. But he is no longer there because the life he lives, he lives to God. No longer under the reign of sin and death. He was there for a while. But he is no longer there. He is now living. His position is now in, a, in an entirely different realm. The realm of the power and the glory of God. He has been taken up in glory, as Paul told him, Timothy. So Christ came out of the realm of glory. That's where he was. Into this realm of sin and death. And the Bible tells us that because of this, he was a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. The very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because he, because he came into this realm of sin and death. Voluntarily humbling himself, he chose to come here on our behalf. And while, we, and while here again we are reminded that he was tempted in all manner, just as we are, yet without sin. While he was in the realm of glory, he was never tempted. He could not be tempted. But here, being born of a woman, born under the law, he was tempted in all manner, just as we are, yet without sin. At the tomb of Lazarus, in the wilderness, in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, it says, Son of God who had been from all eternity in the bosom of his Father, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, was now no longer there. He was here in the realm of sin and death. Is any, any wonder that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was this brief moment. I don't know how long it was, but there was this brief moment that he was in a condition where he was 
actually separated from God the Father, entirely out of the realm of God, out of communion with his Father. But now, says Paul, he is no longer in that condition. He died to sin once, and that one fleeting moment has produced our redemption. But on the other side, Christ is now restored to the position where he was before he came into this world. His prayer in John 17, 5 has been answered. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That glory is described in Ephesians 1 and 19. He said, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is no longer in the realm of sin and death. He is in the realm of God, living his life to God. That is his position now. So let's sum it up. We said before, verses 8 through 10 are entirely and exclusively about Jesus Christ. We have to see this in order to understand the context and the interpretation of what is to follow. He has finished with sin once and forever. He has conquered death. His relationship to sin and death was only temporary, and it was for our sakes. That is the good news of the gospel, that the Son of God came down from glory once. There was no reason for it. There was no reason for him to come here except for his love and his mercy and his grace. That we might be redeemed and reconciled to God. But he has finished that work. And he has gone back to glory. The life he lives, he lives now entirely in the realm of God. So having seen all this, we can now look at verse 11 with a clearer eye. Now, I said we were going to go through verse 14, and then I found out that I told you all when we started this book that I'm doing what I was doing all my research through Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones spends three chapters on verse 11. <laughs> That's how important it is, okay? <clears throat> I'm not going to spend three chapters on it, but it's still critically important. Uh, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this is our real turning point in this section. What so many commentators attempt to do much earlier in the chapter. and That is the point of application. But we can't get to the application until we are clear as to what it is we are supposed to be applying not sure if you realize this, but we are six-plus chapters into this epistle to the Roman church. And this is the first glimpse we have of a word of exhortation. 
up till this point, there has been nothing but sheer, sheer doctrine. Just five plus chapters of exposition and doctrine. This is the this is the truth of evangelical Christianity in teaching and preaching and witnessing. You cannot come to application and practice or conduct or behavior or even to experience until you are clear about the doctrine. Thus far, all we have been told is simply the truth about ourselves and the truth about what God in Christ has done for us because of what we are. Now Paul is calling on us to realize the truth that he's been teaching up to this point. We now know the truth about ourselves. Paul wants us to take hold of it, to realize it, and to apply it, to consider this truth. Why? Why does he want us to consider ourselves dead to sin? It is because he is still answering that monstrosity that he brought up in verse 1. He is still dealing with those people who would take this message of the free grace of God and take that to mean that we should continue in sin, that grace may abound. The idea that the more we sin, the more grace that we're going to be given, which is the truth. We all know that's the truth. But the lie from Satan is, however, therefore, let us plunge even more deeply into sin so that we can have more grace. God forbid. Those are Paul's words in the King James. If you realize the truth of this doctrine, then your take would be the exact opposite of that. You would see that everything that is taught in this doctrine is designed to bring us fully and completely out of sin, to conquer sin in us, to make sin unthinkable to us. That is what Paul is doing here. How does he do it? First thing that is absolutely essential to our being delivered from sin and to realizing that we are not to continue in sin is to realize the truth about ourselves as he expounds in verse 11. He says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Three principles to keep in mind prior to getting into the details. First, what is true of Jesus Christ is true of us because we are joined to him. Baptized into him, baptized into his death, crucified with him, died with him, buried with him, raised with him. We are united with Christ, therefore what is true of him is also true of us. Secondly, the statement made in verse 11 has nothing to do with our experience word consider proves that clearly. We can't consider an experience. If we've already had the experience, then there would be nothing to consider. The experiential comes in the next verse. The third principle is that this verse is not dealing directly with the question, question of our holy living and sanctification, but it does eventually lead to that. Verse 11 has nothing to do directly with sanctification, but indirectly it is vitally a vitally important verse with regards to that whole question. Three principles that are vitally important and, again, anchored in the fact that they are not experiential. What is true of Christ is true of us. His experience does not figure into this. He was always holy. He never had any sin. All that matters is the 
In like manner, we also, that Paul says over and over again, in like manner, we also, what happened to him has happened to us. Now the exposition. He says, consider. In other words, regard yourself as something. Regard ourselves as what? Paul says, consider yourselves to be what you are. Regard yourselves to be what you are. Consider and keep this in the forefront of your mind always. Regard yourselves and keep regarding yourselves as this truth about yourself. Come to this conclusion. Draw this deduction. This is the logical conclusion that you have to come to if you believe all that I have been teaching you. Just accept God's word about yourself and draw this inevitable conclusion from it. Do what Abraham did when God spoke to him at the age of 99 and Sarah being 90 and said to him, Sarah is going to conceive and bear a son. It sounded impossible. But Abraham believed God because God said it. Abraham believed it in spite of everything to the contrary. In other words, Abraham considered what God had said was true. He came to the conclusion that what God had promised God could surely also perform. God said it, so that must be true. A logical conclusion based on the veracity of the word of God. That is the context of the term consider, as it is being used here. To accept God's word and draw the inevitable deduction from it. Consider yourselves. Who is yourselves? We spent quite a bit of time explaining this. It means your essential personality. We're going to deal with this exhaustively in chapter 7, but for now it means you, yourself. This distinct personality that God has given to you and to me. The thing that makes us different from one another. All separate and different people. Some more different than others, as I've been told on occasion. <laughs> it means the individuals that we are. I once was a man in Adam. I am no longer a man, in, a man in Adam. I am now a man in Christ. It is my being, my entity that he is referring to here. You. This being that you, the you that came from God and the you that will go back and stand before God. Consider yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus. Not through him, not by him. He says, in him. It is our position that guarantees our hope and our assurance. In him is our hope and our assurance. We're not merely forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. We have been united with Christ. We are joined to him. We are in Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. We are a part of him. We are his body. So here's the argument. Consider yourselves also to be dead to sin and alive to God. Why? Because you are in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to the practical application. What are we then to consider or regard or to deduce as being true of us because we are in Christ Jesus? What is the logical logical conclusion that I come to 
and keep always in the forefront of my mind as I walk in this newness of life. The first thing is that we are dead indeed to sin. What happened to him happened to us. Christ is dead indeed to the realm and rule and reign of sin. If we are in him, so are we. If you are in him, you have to be. There is no alternative. Because Christ is dead indeed unto sin, you being in him are also dead indeed unto sin. So this is not an exhortation for us to go and die to sin, as so many put it. This is an exhortation to accept as true what God has already said of you. Not something that we wish to be true, but something that is actually true of us. Consider yourselves, because of your union with Christ, to be dead to sin. Not because of anything I have done, not because I keep repeating that phrase until I finally come to believe it. This is something that was done for us by another, and it is already true. I am dead to sin. I am dead to the law. I am dead to death itself. The Holy Spirit has placed me into my new position with Christ, and I am going to reap all the consequences and blessings of being in that position. There is nothing experiential here at all. It is all about my position. It is all about my standing in the eyes of God. It is about my whole status, the realm in which I now walk as a Christian. Paul's exhortation is for us to grab hold of this truth and live accordingly and make certain that we are indeed doing what Paul has asked us to do here. This is something we have to believe solely because the Word of God teaches it. There are so many times in our lives that we don't feel like we are in Christ. We are surrounded by things that are trying to keep us from being there. But it is true because God said it is true. You do not experience your position. You are placed into it. You are told about it, and then you believe it. We have the Word of God that tells us, tells us that this is God's way and this is God's plan of salvation. And we have nothing else but this. Like Abraham, we must just take the bare Word of God, believe it, submit to it, and act on it. That is our only response to Paul's exhortation here. Just believe this and live accordingly. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, in essence, get thee behind me, Satan. You have been taken out of that realm, and you can never go back into that realm. You can never again return to that bondage. We are indeed dead to sin. Sin can never make me its slave or its captive ever again. 1 John 3 and 9 puts it this way. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now again, John does not say here that we are incapable of committing an act of sin. What he does say is that we cannot go on 
in our slavery and the rule of sin. It is impossible because we are born of God. So our position now is this. When a Christian sins, he does not do so as a slave. The sin he commits is as a free man who is choosing to do that which is wrong. All us old people, all us old people. I used to know a time when I didn't have to say all us old people, but now I'm an all us old people. We remember a guy by the name of Flip Wilson. Y'all remember a guy by the name of Flip Wilson? You remember one of his uh, phrases was, the devil made me do it? Well, that is true of all who are unregenerate, who are unsaved. The devil makes them do all sorts of wicked things. They have no choice. Even the good things that they want to do are still sin because those things are not done for God. Their position is under the dominion of sin and death. They cannot break free. They are enslaved to sin. Christians are free from that slavery. Christians have a choice. You understand the implications of that statement. Christians have a choice. A Christian, when he sins, does not sin as a slave because he has been bought out of that slavery. A Christian has been delivered from the power of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That is where we are. In God's kingdom, and when we fall, that is where we fall. We don't fall all the way to where we used to be. We fall where we are. Okay? It is our status and our position that ultimately matters. Now, we fall far too often. At least I do. I don't know about the rest of you. Fools that we are. Fools that we are. We fall far too often. But when we fall, we are still in the kingdom. We simply get up from where we fell and we continue on. We never fall out of our position. We are no longer where we were. We are in an entirely different position, in an entirely different realm. We can and do still fall where we are, but we can never fall back into the slavery from whence we have been purchased. When a Christian sins, he does not do so as a slave, but as a free man. That is why a Christian that falls into sin is a fool. The driving force behind sin in us is gone. Why would we ever choose to yield ourselves voluntarily to it again? Nothing and no one. Not even the devil himself can ever make a Christian a slave again to sin and its consequences. We are dead indeed to that realm. The rule of the reign and the power of sin. We may be conscious of its activity in our bodies, but we have within us the power to resist its dominion. This is your measure for self-examination, that your death to sin is in fact a reality, but it is also true experientially. Think back to the days when you were still lost. 
the days when you were still unsaved, what was your attitude then towards sin? Is your attitude towards it now the same? If you are truly saved, then your attitude towards sin has changed. The things that I used to think were desirable now make me kind of sick to my stomach. Anybody feel that? When we are dead to sin, our whole attitude towards sin is changed. The sure test of your regeneration is that when we do inevitably fall into sin, that that sin will make you miserable. It will haunt you. It will cause you to seek a release from it. Anyone that is able to continue in sin with no pain of conscience has no reason to believe that they have ever been saved. A backslider, that's what the old-timers term was, backslider. Simply because of his position as a child of God will never be allowed to continue like that. He will be stopped and he will be brought back because he is in Christ. In Christ, we can stand firm in faith and challenge sin and death and the grave and defy them because we know that Christ has conquered them all. And since we are in him, they no longer have any dominion over us. May pass through them, we may be troubled by them, harassed by them, but as the kids would say, they're not the boss of us. We have a new ruler, and we live in a new realm. We're free from all of that in Jesus Christ. We're dead indeed to sin. Which brings us to the positive half of this verse. He says, And we are alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Continuing in sin is an impossible suggestion because we are indeed dead to sin. But that is not all that is certain. He says we are alive to God. What is true of Christ is true of us. Christ is now alive to God. We being in him are now alive to God. Again, this is not an experience. This is a fact based on our position position which we believe by faith because it is clearly stated in God's word. So what does this tell us? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That has already happened. Alive together with Christ. This is the balance that we spoke about earlier. Remember we said you can't have one without the other. We're not only dead to sin, dead to the condemnation of sin, but we are completely free of its rule and its realm and its reign and its power. We are in this other realm and under this other power, the power of grace. The very same power that God used to bring his own son out of the grave is working in us. Paul says, consider yourselves, regard yourselves, keep always in the forefront of your minds that you are now alive to God. Which means what? It means manifold blessings. 
that stem from the fact that in Christ, because of our union with Christ, we are in an entirely new relationship with God. Now, hear this. We are no longer under the wrath of God. Your friends, your families, your co-workers, all those people that are unsaved, they are under the wrath of God. You and I were once under the wrath of God, enemies of God, children of wrath. That is why the world is as it is. That is why the insanity is growing and multiplying around us every day. The world, this world, is under the wrath of God. He has given it over. The misery of every unbeliever that is so obvious is because of that wrath of God. But we, being what we are, being in the position we are in, in Christ, have been delivered from all of that in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that we are reconciled to God. We are no longer under his wrath. We stand in his favor. A sinner is not in the favor of God, but we are. God doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners. God hears every prayer we utter. He hears every thought we think. We are alive to God, alive in his presence. We have access to his presence. We have access to his throne of grace. We are reconciled to God. We have become his children and objects of his love and his very special concern, perfectly stated in John 17 and 23. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The Lord prayed these words that the whole world would know that God has loved us Christians just like he loved his only begotten son. There's nothing greater than that. No matter how down on yourself you might get, realize that the creator of the universe loves you equally as much as he loves his own son. Now, said without basis, that sounds like a pretty narcissistic statement, doesn't it? God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. How can I say that? Because that's what the scripture says. That is what we realize when we consider ourselves alive to God. God loves the Christian as he loved his only begotten son. Which in turn leads to this that we are now open to all the blessings of God. That is the inevitable result. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand, as he says in chapter 5 and verse 2. Open to all his blessings, all his grace, which means the same thing. Undeserved gifts, and we are standing in them, open to them, all of them most woeful thing about a man who is without Christ is that he is cut off from the blessings of God. Not only stuck in the misery and suffering that result from his sin, but cut off from any of the greatest blessings of God. Now, we know that common grace often brings rain and sun and health and strength and 
all that, and all those are wonderful gifts, but they pale in comparison to the spiritual blessings, such as Peter mentions when he says, all things that pertain to life and godliness and the exceeding great and precious promises. The sinner knows nothing of these most precious blessings. We as Christians are open to receive them because we are alive to God, no longer buried in that grave of sin, but standing on our feet and looking into the face of God. God made man originally for communion with himself, but as the result of sin and the fall, man lost that relationship, became estranged to God. Man was left to himself, left to his animal instincts. That is why the world is as it is. Man without God is a travesty. In Christ, all that is canceled. We are back in that relationship, alive to God and enjoying the communion and access that Adam for a time enjoyed, but even more so. We're also the special objects of God's concern and attention and purpose. To be alive to God means to be in God's purpose, in God's plan. This is where I get to spout my favorite verse of all, Romans 8:28. How many of you know that? For we know that God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Being alive to God means that we are in God's purpose. Everything that happens to us is being worked together for our good. What is that good? That we should become more and more like his dear son. That's the good thing. This ain't ain't talking about Mercedes and palaces and all that kind of stuff. Talk about our good, the ultimate good. Everything that has happened to you is bringing you closer to God and further from sin. That is our good. To be closer to God and further from sin. That is our good. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Impossible, says Paul, because being alive to God means that we are in the eternal purpose and plan of God. What is God's eternal purpose with regards to his children? Ephesians 1 and 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we all know that he chose us before the foundation of the world. Why did he do that? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That is God's purpose for his people. That is the thing that was on his mind when he planned our salvation before the foundation of the world. The whole end of salvation whole idea behind the plan and purpose of salvation in Christ Jesus is that we are to be holy and blameless before him in love. So here's Paul's argument. If that, if that is God's plan and purpose for us that are in Christ Jesus, how in the world could anyone ever think, much less say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Living in sin is the exact opposite of the whole purpose of God. Being alive to God means that I am alive to this purpose of God, which is that I should be holy and without blame before him. And more importantly, this purpose is right now being worked out in us. 
How does that happen? He takes those of us who by our very nature are born in sin and shaped in iniquity, we who are under the wrath of God, under the power of sin, under the power of the enemy, and he sends his own son to set us free, to free us from all that and to make us holy. How then is this purpose of God to make us holy and blameless being worked out in us? Well, the first thing, which includes everything, is that we have been united to Christ. We did not unite ourselves to Christ. The Holy Spirit has united us to Christ. We are in him in a way that our minds cannot comprehend. We belong to him. We are the body of Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. It is a living union. We receive our very life from him. We receive all our power and strength from him. United to Christ in the most intimate manner conceivable. Now, because we are joined to Christ and are members of his body, of which Christ is the head, awesome results become a reality. One result, as stated by Paul in Philippians 4.13, is that I can now do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Nothing is impossible. Now, if you were ever on a sports team, that was probably in your locker room telling you to beat them other guys down the road because the Bible said so. They probably had the same thing in their locker room that said that they could beat you because the Bible said so. That's not what that's talking about. All things are possible. I can overcome this battle against sin. I can overcome my doubts and my fears. That's what this is talking about. Okay? The power of Christ is in me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me his own power to do so. Me being put into Christ means that God is working out his plan for me and in me. He predetermined that I was to be made holy and without blame before him in love. How does he do that? He puts me into Christ. But it does not stop at that. We know that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Just as he dwelled in Christ while he was here in the flesh, he also dwells in us by measure, fully in Christ, by measure in us. As Paul told the Corinthians, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. To be alive to God means that God puts the Holy Spirit within us. Yet some people still say, that preaching the doctrines of grace leads people to say that we can continue in sin, that grace may abound. How can it possibly happen when God puts his spirit within us? The spirit that was in Christ is in us. And it is God, through the Holy Spirit, that is working in us both to will and to do. What does that look like in practice? It is God working in us that gives us the will to do those things that he is going to work together for our good. When he hints to you that you should read the word, when he hints to you that you should join the fellowship at the church, that is his effect on our will. When he, and that will is what brings us here. Even the good things that we do are still from him. Okay? He stimulates our minds, moves us to do that which is good, and it is constantly going on, constantly in the life of every believer. When he tells you to turn off that TV because you shouldn't be watching that trash, that's the Holy Spirit within you. 
Once we are converted, we do not remain stagnant. This willing and working begin immediately and continue on for our whole lives, prompting us, leading us to will and to do. That power working in us is so much greater than the sinful desire still lingering in our members. If only we would just grab hold of it and accept it for what it is. How powerful is the Spirit within us? Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The moment that you are alive to God, you are alive to this power that is beyond our highest thoughts, beyond our loftiest imaginings, and it is the power that is designed, specifically designed, to make us blameless and faultless before the Lord. And this power will never stop working within us until the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who planted this power within us, and God being who he is, never leaves a work unfinished. He began this good work within us, and he will be faithful to complete it. That is why Paul says here that we are indeed dead to sin. We are indeed alive to God. That is our position. That is our status. That is our standing in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the only one that matters. He will bring his purpose to pass. Nothing can stop it. And our position guarantees it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your plan and your purpose. Thank you for making us part of your plan and your purpose. In spite of all that we are, Lord, you loved us. And your mercy and your grace fell upon us. Lord, help us to accept that not to go through life depressed and down and worried about all of the nonsense. Lord, we stand in you. We stand with you. Lord, help us to grab hold of that and live accordingly. Father, be with us as we continue our service this morning. May everything said and done be for your glory. In Christ's name I pray.